You're listening to TIP. Hey guys, I am really excited to share an upcoming event hosted by the Investors Podcast Network. Beginning on Monday, October 17th, we're launching a stock pitch competition for you all to compete in, where the first place prize is $1,000 plus a year-long subscription to our TIP finance tool. If you are interested in this, please visit theinvestorspodcast.com slash stock dash competition for more information. The last day to submit your stock analysis will be Sunday, November 27th. And to compete, please make sure you're signed up for our daily newsletter, We Study Markets, as that's where we'll announce the winners. And all entries can be submitted to the email newsletters at theinvestorspodcast.com. I think what people really need to be thinking about is you need to be an opportunistic investor right now, not a cautious investor. The time to make life-changing wealth in the market is in these times where there's so much fear and uncertainty. On today's episode, I am joined by Dave Allison who's a financial planner and entrepreneur and the lead trainer and founding partner of Clarity to Prosperity, where Dave serves as a mentor and coach to thousands of financial advisors nationwide. Dave also founded Allison Wealth Management, which serves clients virtually across the U.S. During this episode, Dave shares how to create a financial plan using his bucket plan method. He goes over the three phases in his bucket plan, and how we can optimally think about allocating assets to each bucket to meet our financial goals. He also shares some tips on how we can think about allocating investments between accounts in the most tax-efficient manner, when to rebalance your portfolio and sell some of your winners, and how to protect your portfolio against periods of rising interest rates and recessions, and so much more. So with that said, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dave Allison. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I am joined by Dave Allison. Dave, a welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Excited to be here. So today, we are going to be talking all about how to prepare your portfolio for a recession and how millennials can create a financial plan for themselves to help combat market volatility, downturns, and inflation as this is likely on the forefront of many investors' minds right now. So to kick things off today, I would like to have you start off by talking about your investment philosophy that you use with a lot of your clients called the bucket plan. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to the point of being prepared, right, at the end of the day, that's what having a plan is all about. And those of us that have a plan can take advantage of opportunities when things go south. Uh, Recessions are, are somewhat inevitable. You know, market downturns are a natural part of investing. And so the most important thing for us when we think about investing is ensuring people are prepared. And so the bucket plan is really kind of our behavioral framework of how we should all think about segmenting our money. 
And it kind of almost comes off as common sense, but so many people miss it that, that we really feel like everyone should have essentially three buckets of money, if you will, right? The first bucket of money, what we would call the now bucket, is really your safe and your liquid money. You know, we've kind of heard cash is king. You should have X amount of cash on hand to get through any uncertainty. With that now bucket of money, we typically recommend to have maybe up to 12 months worth of living expenses or income in the form of cash. We expect or, or, or advise our clients to have some sort of an emergency fund, right? A rainy day or a sunny day type of fund. And then last but not least, any major planned expenses that they know they're going to have on the short term time horizon in the next six to 12 months. Like if they were going to go take that $10,000 European vacation. And really that now bucket is off the table from investing in volatile markets because essentially you might need it and it gives you peace of mind to lay your head on the pillow at night knowing it's just there safe and liquid. The second bucket is what we would call the soon bucket. So we have the now bucket is our money in the bank generally. Our soon bucket is going to be any money that we may need or will need to access sooner rather than later. And so as we all know, markets are very volatile in the short run. We're experiencing that right now. But statistically, if you look over a longer period of time, five, seven, 10 years, that volatility starts to smooth out because of a longer time horizon. And so really think about that soon bucket as that area that you would go to if you needed to access your money sooner rather than later. So it's invested for growth to help offset inflation because we all know the money in the now bucket town at the bank isn't even keeping up with inflation in a normal environment, let alone the skyrocketing inflation we're seeing now. That soon bucket is invested for growth to help offset inflation. It's just invested more conservatively so that if there was a big downturn in the market like we're experiencing right now, and you needed to access some of that money, you would have the ability to do so without having to sell into a major down market. And so for a lot of my clients, not only is that the money that they may need or will need sooner rather than later, it can also serve as more of an opportunity fund also. Because we all know in many cases, the best time to buy assets are in distressed markets. It's when they're, they're going down in value. And so think about that soon bucket as a place maybe you have some dry gunpowder to be able to go shopping as real estate values are falling or stock prices are falling. And then last but not least, the third bucket, Rebecca, is the later bucket. And so this is where we've essentially bought a time horizon with the now bucket and the soon bucket and can have the confidence to make those longer term investments, knowing that markets are gonna go up and down, we're gonna go through different economic cycles, but there's certain asset classes that, assuming you hold them for the right period, have a very high probability at rewarding those that supply capital, i.e. investors like all of us. And so we try to think about it in terms of what needs to be in your now bucket, what needs and should be in your soon bucket, and then last but not least, the majority of your assets in many cases are out in that later bucket, really for long-term growth without having to worry about the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month market volatility. 
I really like that framework of kind of thinking about how to manage or I guess like financially plan your money at the forefront because that really helps us think about what to prioritize first. So I have a few questions, I guess, on each of the buckets, starting with the now bucket. You mentioned having 12 months of income in that now bucket. So I guess my question is, what if a millennial doesn't have that amount in their savings right now? They have that amount of money, but maybe they've invested some. Would you recommend always having that 12 months of, I guess, income set aside in cash before even investing? The key with that, and and I want to clarify, I, I generally advise up to 12 months. And so it's not a hard, fast number of 12 months for everyone. Like I'll give you my personal example. I keep three months of living expenses in cash maybe a little bit more aggressive. I would have rather have more of that money invested, having a better rate of return, hopefully, than what cash would provide. I have many other clients who maybe don't share the same sentiment of being a little bit more aggressive. Maybe they're a little more conservative or adverse to risk, and they really want to keep 12 months. And then the third component of that is job stability, right? Like, If you're uncertain of your job, if you're starting to hear about layoffs at your company, and you know there might be a bumpy road ahead of you, you might want to expand that time horizon to 12 months. I have many clients that are business owners and they like to keep more cash on hand because they know if things go sideways, they're the last person that's going to get paid. I think everybody's situation and aversion to risk helps dictate what that number is, whether it's a month, three months, Six months, 12 months, 12 months is on the kind of high end though, once you've got that, that amount of cash set aside. And then for the soon bucket, for that one, you kind of mentioned that is for purchases that we plan to make in the near future or something. So I guess, what does that mean in terms of asset allocation? Because the now bucket, that's clear. That's cash. That's not in an investment. But then what, I guess, are we investing in for that soon bucket? The soon buckets, uh, it's a challenging one. And it's even in this market been incredibly challenging because like if you think about going back to like the academic side of investing or asset allocation 101, it was like there's three main assets. There's cash, there's bonds or fixed income, and then there's stocks. And historically, bonds have served as a pretty good ballast in a portfolio to provide some downside protection and some uncorrelated exposure to the stock market, right? If the stock market goes down, hopefully bonds go up. If bonds go up, the stock market's going down. Well, we're in this unique situation that many, at least millennial investors, haven't experienced in their lifetime. We're starting to go into a rising interest rate environment. We've been in a declining interest rate environment since the really early 80s at this point. And essentially what happens is when you go into a rising interest rate environment, the principal value of bonds falls. And so if you were to say, well, from a textbook perspective, maybe a 50-50 balanced portfolio would be a really good option in that soon bucket because it would provide some stability to the volatile times in the stock market. Well, that really hasn't held up. And we've kind of seen that writing on the wall. Like it's nothing new to the academic world that when interest rates go up, principal value of bonds go down. And if you look at the longer the duration of the bond, the harder it's fallen. For example, like a 30 year bond right now is down about 30%, almost the same as like the NASDAQ is down for the year. But the shorter the duration and the higher the credit quality of the bond, 
the more stable it is or the less impacted it is by a rising interest rate environment. One area to focus on from a bond perspective in a rising interest rate environment is going more towards short duration, high credit quality. Two years, three years, four years. I was just looking at the numbers and, you know, the two year treasury, for example, which is a really good kind of risk free rate of return is paying almost a 4% yield right now. You know, that could be an option to blend a balanced portfolio of shorter duration, higher quality bonds with stable, sound equities on the stock side to provide some stability. The other thing that we see outside of just a traditional balanced portfolio approach is some alternative asset classes that could fit inside of that soon bucket that help provide downside protection or mitigate risk. Some of those products could be insurance products, right? Like if you invest in permanent or cash value type of insurance, you at least have some downside protection on the market going down. It could be a good source of stability in somebody's plan. Or you could use some of the different types of option strategies out there or collared risk strategies. There's some great ETFs that are in the market now, these defined outcome ETFs that essentially provide you exposure to the S&P 500 on the upside up to a cap or a participation rate, but they protect a certain buffer on the downside, like 20 or 30%. Those are just a couple of very high-level examples whether it's more towards a balanced portfolio using high quality bonds with equities in a a certain allocation, depending on what your risk or volatility target is, whether it's outsourcing or shifting some of the risk or liability to an insurance company, or whether it is using some of these newer hybrid type of products that provide more collaring or option type of protection on the downside. So then for that bucket, Are these ones kind of just subjective then in terms of how millennials should think about allocating their overall available capital between these three buckets? Is the soon bucket kind of subjective to what they might need along with the later bucket versus the now bucket? It's this is money that you should have because that's what you need to live. Exactly. So I think that when I'm talking to clients about their soon bucket, There's really two primary questions that I'm asking. The first is, do you have any known planned expenses or goals that you would like to achieve in the next five, seven, eight years? I'll use a couple of examples of my own personal financial life. A few years back, we were living in Ohio and my wife was like, she wanted to move down south. And so I knew at some point I was going to be making a second home purchase And I didn't want to have to be forced to sell my primary home before I could make that second home purchase. So in my mind, I needed enough capital in my soon bucket to be able to substantiate the down payment on that second home so that if we found our dream home a couple years ago, it was a really quick moving market. We had to show up and make a deal quickly if we wanted that home. Well, that was money that I allocated into my soon bucket so that the day we found the home, I put an offer in it, didn't even think twice about it. That was an example of like, I knew there was this projected goal at some point in the future. I would even say, you know, if anyone has children that are approaching like high school, getting ready for college age, 
that might be another soon bucket number. I've had many clients who have maybe a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old, and they're three, four, five years away from college, and they want to be able to have a bucket of money to help with college funding. Or a client recently that I was talking to just had another child, and they're going to need both, both spouses are working. They're going to need about $25,000 a year of health care. And so they wanted to allocate, or not health care, excuse me, child care. And so they wanted to allocate about four or five years of child care expenses in their soon bucket. And so those are all just different examples where you look at what the goals are that you might have, and you start to quantify backwards how much you need in that soon bucket to achieve those goals. And that's a great way to think about saving too for short-term goals, because one of the things that I know I've, I've talked about with many of my clients is like a big reason that they save and they invest money is so that ultimately one day they could have the financial freedom to be able to retire or stop working. But for many of us, I know at least for me, like my only goal in life isn't to be able to retire one day. It's to have all these other things along the way. If I have a four-year goal to do X, Y, and Z, now I can start implementing a savings and accumulation plan over the next four years in my soon bucket to get to the point where my balance meets my goal now and, and I can really track my financial progress. There's one avenue that's purely goals-based. The second one is very non-scientific, right? The second one is a simple question that I ask my clients, is there a certain amount of money you just want invested more defensively or conservatively so that if we do experience a big downturn in the market, this portion of your portfolio is not going to fall like the rest of the market potentially does. And I found everybody kind of has that magic number, whether it's 50 grand, 100 grand, or a million dollars. People have that number that it's like there's kind of safety net. They want it invested because they don't want it sitting in the bank earning zero, but they don't want it in a full equity portfolio that's going to be very volatile. They can't stomach that volatility. And what's fantastic about that design is that going into this market downturn, for all of those clients that we had properly funded a soon bucket for, now they have the opportunity to go on a shopping spree. There's a lot of good companies out there that have severely depressed stock prices. And so we're able to take some of that soon bucket money and kind of think about reallocating it towards the later bucket and go and buy really good companies that we can now hold on to for five or 10 years. And we saw the same exact thing in 2020 where the market fell 30, 35% really quickly when the pandemic erupted. And our clients who had soon buckets established were able to go on a buying spree of some of particularly those tech companies that really skyrocketed and had that V-shaped recovery. That's just you know, an idea of kind of getting to that dollar amount in the soon bucket. It's much more of a gut feeling with you know, a millennial or somebody of a younger age. When you get into retirement, it becomes really easy. You know, we typically recommend five to 10 years worth of retirement income in that soon bucket. And so if I was trying to project out how much I would need to have in order to retire, I would want to make sure I could have about five to 10 years worth in that soon bucket and then a bigger pile of money out in that later bucket that's going to replenish my income bucket over time and throughout the latter half of my life.
And now I kind of want to touch on the later bucket because I'm just wondering for your clients, do you figure out, I guess, how much they need in the future and then reverse engineer what kind of return rate you would need to get there by that date? I'm just trying to help, I guess, millennials think about how to create this long-term financial plan. I think that's a great way to potentially do it, right? And that kind of gets to the heart of, again, like goals-based financial planning is number one, we start with what are some of your goals? I always share, you know, with my clients that are of a younger age, like it's really hard to think out 20 or 30 years into the future. You know, if you ask me where my life is going to be in 30 years, I'd have a really hard time answering that question. And I always just say, well, let's put a bogey out there because if we have no goal, we're just going to be kind of throwing our arms up in the air and it's better to have a goal and at least try to continue to get to there. And so if you were to tell me my goal is I want to try to be able to retire by 62, And then I would say, what type of standard of living do you want? How much do you make right now? Are you comfortable living off of the amount? Do you feel like in retirement you might need more or less? You know, hopefully you're going to continue to go into peak earning years. As you earn more, your lifestyle is going to probably continue to improve. And I don't meet many 60 or 65 year olds that want to take a step back in lifestyle once they retire. And so we start to get to some of these core targets, to your point. And if somebody told me, well, I want to be able to retire with $10,000 a month in today's dollars in terms of an income stream, well, then we start to get to some of these other financial concepts that we call uh, one example would be an income gap that said, okay, if you need $10,000 a month of income in retirement, well, what sources of income do we know you're going to get outside of your own savings? And for many millennials, hopefully it's going to be social security, depending on the outcome of social security over the next 20 or 30 years. But we can all see our statements and know what some projected benefits are going to be. If somebody came in and said, well, my social security benefit is projected to be 40000 that means we need about $80,000 of our own money per year to make up to get to that 120000 in today's dollars of spendable retirement income. And so from there, we would start to reverse engineer the numbers of, okay, if I need 80,000 of spendable income, how much do I need to accumulate by the time I'm 62 to make that happen? And then if I can save X amount of dollars every month, what type of rate of return would I need based on that savings trajectory? And so this is all stuff that you could mathematically model out, of course. And I always find that just having a target or having a goal is incredibly helpful. It's amazing to see. I always call it milestones. You know, five years at a time, we check in and say, all right, how are we doing on this milestone? Are we, are we off? Are we ahead of schedule? Kind of where we're at and why with our clients. And they find that to be somewhat helpful and just making sure they're on track to meet some of their goals, both long-term like retirement and short-term like some of the other things that we spoke about. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, 
customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. I really love how you touched on all of that because I think we often get caught up on beating the market. But at the end of the day, maybe you would have enough for retirement by having the market return. You just have to kind of backtrack your goal. Like you said, figure out what return that is. Maybe it's only 7% or 6 Obviously, a better return means more money for you later, but that would eliminate some of the decisions we make from buying and selling different assets because we want to get that extra return when really that might be hurting us in the long term. It is. And you know, it's really interesting. I mean, that whole concept of beating the market, I think that 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 takes our focus away from what truly matters. We manage a lot of money at our firm. We're over, I think, 1.75 billion or so of client assets that we manage. And I co-chair our investment committee. Would I love to always beat the market? Of course. Like, have I ever met a client that wouldn't want to? 
Of course, like everybody wants to make as much money as possible and earn the highest rate of return they possibly can. But it's insanely difficult to consistently beat the market over a 30 year time period. I mean, Warren Buffett and others have kind of exhibited that in some of the research and data out there. And so I always challenge people to kind of reframe the conversation and rethink the approach and the philosophy behind what you're trying to accomplish. Because for me, and one of the things I explained to all my clients is the money is just a means to achieve the goals and objectives that we have in life. And so let's start with outlining what all those goals and objectives that you have in life are, and they're going to change over your life. What mine were 10 years ago before I had three kids are much different than what they are today now that I have three kids under six. We really try to start with goals and objectives. And then to your point, reverse engineer the lifestyle and the math backwards. Because at the end of the day, if you looked back over a 80, 90 year life and you were able to achieve all of your goals and objectives, but you underperformed the market by one or 2%, I don't think you would be that disappointed with your life. But if you were expecting to beat the market by one or 2%, But then you look back at your life and you only actually were able to achieve 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of the true goals and objectives you had in life. You might be a little bit disappointed. I think everything needs to start and kind of reshift with what are those goals? What's the purpose of the money? I have a, a specialization where we work with very high net worth clients, mostly in Silicon Valley and in tech. And I can tell you most of these clients, although they love earning and making money, Their biggest concerns aren't beating the market. Their biggest concerns are, can I live my life to the fullest and achieve what I want to achieve with what I have without taking on too much risk? And, you know, it's more, again, about accumulating wealth in the right way, because once you get into your 50s or 60s, if you make a few wrong moves, it's very hard to ever make that wealth back again. And so I don't know, I just always kind of challenge people with their thinking on that term of beating the market. Not that we all don't want to get great returns whenever we can. Yeah, I'm definitely glad we touched on that because I just think, especially in today's environment, investors could be making some mistakes by buying and selling maybe unnecessarily and adding maybe risk, extra risk to their portfolio that they wouldn't otherwise. And so I guess I'm just wondering. Can you talk a bit about that emotional aspect and some of the biggest mistakes that you see your clients or investors make when a recession or bad times fall? You know, I just want to start. There's kind of an empathetic side of things that like nobody in the world likes seeing their account balances go down. Like you could have the most amount of money and the greatest financial plan. And at the end of the day, you see your account balances go down and like it never feels great. And there's actually some great research and studies done on kind of risk aversion and and loss behavior that people actually hate losing more than they like gaining. You know, some of the greatest athletes in the world subscribe to this, like Michael Jordan hated losing a game more than he ever liked winning a game. And I feel like that transcends into the investment world. We all hate losing much more than we like winning. So these downturns, while they are generally short in nature, if you look at the time of a bear market, you know, it's maybe 18, 20, 24 months. Of course, we've seen these really horrible ones like 2008, 2009 that lasted a few years. They have a sharp fall and then generally a full recovery. And so I think some of the biggest mistakes that people make from an investment standpoint is, is very common. It's they buy high and they sell low, right? They looked at what was happening in the stock market over the last couple years 
and they were chasing trends instead of actually having a sound discipline principle and philosophy. Maybe going into last year, and I can't tell you how many portfolios I saw that were massively overweight technology, as an example. You know, they might have been 80% of their portfolio tech. And prudence would tell us that's not great diversification, even though those are some wonderful companies. And again, look at what's happened this year. This year, we've seen an incredible value premium over growth, right? Growth stocks are way down, value premiums have remained somewhat stable. They make decisions based on trend following or emotions, sometimes what they're hearing in the media of hyping up these hot stocks or funds that maybe have already experienced their run-up. Take a look at some of the ETFs like ARK that we've seen out there gained so much popularity. And by the time a lot of investors got in, it tanked, right? And so I think the timing of your investments, chasing returns, cashing out of the market at times like this right now, I think what people really need to be thinking about is you need to be an opportunistic investor right now, not a cautious investor. The time to make life-changing wealth in the market is in these times where there's so much fear and uncertainty. And it's not that you have to take insane risks, right? I'm not saying go like dump all your money in cryptocurrency or something like that. But being a buyer of financial assets as prices are falling, it seems contrarian. Why would I want to put my money in as the knife is falling? But the reality of it is we all know that capitalism works to a certain extent and all of these companies that make up the stock market are in business to produce money. And we're going to ride out this short-term storm. I think you know, insuring people are not essentially getting out of the market when in in fact they should be still turning up their savings during this time period and trying to buy more assets. They're acquiring more shares. And by acquiring more shares, when the markets do rebound, they'll have greater wealth because of it. Those are a couple, of course, the big ones. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise to people but it's very much harder to do in practice, especially when you're managing your own money because you're so much more emotionally devoted and connected to it that, you know, again, for some of our biggest clients, they just want to outsource it and not have to look at it because they don't have the discipline to do, even though they, they have the knowledge to know what they should be doing, they don't have the discipline to actually transact on their own to be able to execute. Those are a couple of the big things, Rebecca. Yeah, I think that's the biggest struggle being an investor that manages your own money. Like you said, it's just you might know exactly what to do, but the emotion can sometimes get the best of you. So I'm wondering, does the bucket plan, in your opinion, kind of help investors maybe manage some of those risks or that bad behavior? It does completely. And like, it's really interesting. This year, we've obviously seen the first three quarters, one of the worst starts to stock market history. And we don't have clients reaching out or calling in a negative way at all. I haven't had one call since the market has gone down. And the reason for that is they know that they have their now bucket. They have their soon bucket if things were to continue to get really crazy and this recession becomes a deeper recession or things get worse economically. And then they know in their later bucket they have a prudent strategic strategy to how that portfolio is designed for long-term growth. 
They also know that if they, and where we've been getting more of our calls from clients, I just got one right before I got on this, this podcast with you is, I sent out a quick little economic and, and market intel report through the first three quarters to our clients. And they were like, hey, I actually have a pile of excess cash in my now bucket. Can we move it over to our later bucket? What do you think about some buying opportunities right now? I think that is the bucket plan gives us and our clients, number one, common language. Number two, they start to know, hey, my now bucket's getting a little bit too filled up. I need to start reallocating that. They know they have a soon bucket so that they can weather the short-term volatility of these ups and downs that the market is facing and have that time horizon out in the later bucket. That's really important. I think another thing that you know kind of coincides with it, and it's not as much investment related as it is, in my opinion, one of the best ways to build wealth is thinking about tax planning during these market downturns. Because inside of the bucket plan, we're also looking at what assets you're holding and what account types you're holding them in. We're doing an awful lot of Roth conversion planning right now where we're taking pre-tax dollars that are now maybe down 20, 30, 40%, depending on the stocks that they were holding. And we're paying tax on the value now and converting it to Roth money out in the later bucket and essentially eliminating the government forever you know, from the future earnings in the Roth. And so don't just look at the stocks and the bonds and the mutual funds and the ETFs that you're holding look at the tax diversification that you have, because now is an unbelievable time to start doing strategic tax planning on top of your investments. I'm sure that we could have a whole episode just kind of talking about those tax efficiencies and the most tax optimal way to position yourself. But on a high level, I guess, do you have any tips for millennials on how to allocate their investments in the most tax optimal way? Say for, let's use the last bucket, their long-term bucket. Do you have any tips for that one? I do, totally. I actually just got back from two days in Austin, Texas. I was teaching a group of CPAs and financial advisors this whole kind of tax management journey concept of really helping them accumulate and protect their wealth from income taxation. I actually on my uh, YouTube page, I have a video. It's about a seven minute video where I go through steps to build a tax efficient savings and accumulation plan. But there's some really, really quick tips. Like the first thing is if you're just getting started as an investor, the first place I generally would recommend putting money into is a Roth. Even using that Roth IRA as your emergency fund in your now bucket, because many people don't realize that with a Roth IRA, If you were to need that money, you could get back your contributions tax and penalty free. It's only earnings that would face some sort of tax or pre 59 and a half penalty. If somebody ever came to me and they said, Dave, I just got my first job. I'm about to start saving. I heard I should save an emergency fund down at the bank. I'd say, no, no, not at the bank necessarily. Set up a Roth IRA get $6,000 into there each and every year, use that as your emergency fund, and then any additional savings over that 6,000, start building up your reserves outside of the Roth account. That's a really important account. I think there's great accounts, uh, health savings accounts. They're one of the best accounts for any high income earner because they're the only account in the IRS tax code that is triple tax exempt. You get a deduction for putting money in, It grows tax deferred. You could take the money out income tax free using it for medical expenses. 
The biggest mistake that I see millennials make with HSAs, they put the money in through their employer deduction, but then they take it right out and use it for medical expenses. That is an account that should almost always sit in your later bucket because you get to take advantage of compounding tax deferred growth and then tax free for retirement later on. That's an idea of like the right account in the right bucket can make massive impact to building wealth. So then on the later bucket, would you recommend if millennials have, I guess, like mostly equities, would you say that they should all be in the Roth or Roth IRA account? Or do you think about that differently? I think about it a little bit differently. I mean, most of them, I believe, should be to the extent possible. Like you want any any asset that you're going to hold in the Roth account should be where you feel like you're going to generate the highest expected return in your portfolio. It pains me sometimes when I see like millennials holding bonds in their Roth account, for example, like bonds have a low expected return. You want your highest growth asset. It's how Peter Thiel made like $6 billion in his Roth account. He put all of his PayPal stock in it when it was startup company stock. And now he's got the biggest Roth in the world, which is a little bit questionable. But that's an example of how people should be thinking about the investments inside of their Roth specifically. I think that, you know, as you think about these different account types, I mean, of course, a big limitation we have with Roth is for a millennial, you can only put $6,000 a year into there. It might not be a big part of their overall savings. There's obviously opportunities where you could get more in Roth through a Roth conversion process. But I think it's a great starting point to think about where they might want to hold some of their assets that have higher expected return. I also want to talk to you about money cycle. I read this on your website. And so I was hoping that you could just talk a bit about this and explain to our listeners what this is. Yeah. So the money cycle is a kind of function that we all go through in our lifetime. I'm going through it. You're going through it. My mother's going through it. Everybody goes through it, right? And there's essentially three phases to the money cycle. There's the phase where pretty much probably all of our listeners are today which is the accumulation phase. It's when you're younger, you're working, you're saving, you're accumulating, you're trying to build up your nest egg. Now, when you're younger, when you're working, when you have a steady job and you have a long time horizon before you're gonna retire, you could afford to take on more risk or volatility. You could make bets with your money. You can throw some money in uh, different cryptocurrencies, or you could throw your money in different individual stocks and make kind of bets on whether that's going to pay off or not. Because at the end of the day, if you lose that portion of your money, it's not going to totally disrupt your lifestyle, right? Like you still have a steady paycheck. You still have a good job. You're still a long ways out for retirement. But then as people get to about five to 10 years out from retirement, they start to enter what we call the preservation phase of the money cycle. At this point, they've built their nest egg. They're financially sound or they're on the road to retirement. It's right around the corner and they don't have as much time or capacity to take unnecessary or big risks with their money because they're preparing for the third and final phase, which is distribution. Distribution to themselves in and through retirement and distribution to their family amongst their passing. And so this money cycle is kind of this evolution that we think about from kind of cradle to grave as we all are building wealth, investing, saving, accumulating, and then ultimately climbing down the backside of Mount Everest, which is distribution and retirement. 
When we think about the money cycle, there's really big mistakes or consequences people could make along the way in each of those phases. There's many in the retirement phase, there's some in the preservation phase, but specifically here in the accumulation phase, it kind of gets into some of that topic, Rebecca, you and I were just talking about. I think the biggest mistake I start to see people make in the accumulation phase is they do not think about the tax-sensitive nature of the accounts that they're holding. I, for one, feel taxes are going to continue to be one of the biggest threats to us building wealth. We have an incredible amount of national debt right now. It's continuing to get bigger. Somebody's going to have to pay some of this off, and it's going to come at the hands of higher taxes in the future. I think for millennials as they're investing, in my opinion, the tax diversification that you have is not as important, but it's up there with what types of investments you're actually buying. Because there's certain investments you should always buy in a Roth and certain investments you should never buy in a Roth and certain investments you should buy in an after-tax account and certain investments that aren't as efficient in an after-tax account. And so that's kind of how we think about the money cycle. And it helps us really target in on helping our clients avoid particular mistakes that they could make in each of those incredibly important phases of their investing life. That was really helpful. And the third kind of third concept that I read on your on your website that kind of helps us think about financial planning is the pyramid of risk. Can you talk a bit about this and I guess how our listeners can use this to help inform their investment decisions? This is kind of a visualization concept. I mean, imagine if you have a piece of paper in front of you, you draw the the shape of a pyramid, right? And then divide it into three subsegments. When I explain the pyramid of risk to my clients, I essentially say that, of course, we most of us know that risk and expected return are related. The higher the risk we take, the higher the expected return we should hopefully be rewarded with. But what else happens with things that are high risk? They could lose everything, right? They could totally go out of business. They could lose all of their value. And so there's some trade-offs that we have to navigate. And what I like to do is from like a bigger asset class picture, categorize things and how they fall in that pyramid of risk. So for example, at the top part of the pyramid, I really kind of classify three main categories. The first is alternative assets. So alternatives could be a spectrum of things. They could be cryptocurrencies. They could be oil wells, oil and gas drilling like uh, really anything that's massively speculative and could lack broad liquidity. Because again, if I put a bunch of my money into a speculative hedge fund, I might have to keep it there for 10 years, for example. And so it lacks liquidity. Uh, Those types of investments would kind of sit in that top part of the pyramid. The other types of investments that would fit into the top part of the pyramid are highly concentrated individual stocks or highly concentrated individual bond positions. These are a lot of my clients out in Silicon Valley who have made a lot of wealth in their company stock. They own 80% of their net worth in Meta or Apple or Google or whatever it is. And obviously, the higher the concentration, the riskier it is because that company could do what some of these companies have done. I was just looking at Meta this morning. I think it's down 67%, 65% year to date. That's a big risk for people who have that level of concentration. I I always joke and say it's a cheesy financial advisor line, but concentration gets you rich and diversification keeps you rich as we think about that pyramid of risk. 
And people might say, well, bonds, how are highly concentrated individual bonds at the top part of it? And I go back and look at like 2008, 2009, look at anyone who maybe had high concentrated positions in Lehman Brothers bonds, like they still lost their money. Again, these companies that either issue debt via bonds or equity via stocks could go out of business. I never say like you shouldn't have money up there. You should in many cases because you could potentially hit some grand slams, but you might strike out a lot with those types of investments also. In the middle part of the pyramid, these would be investments that I would consider to be volatile, but not risky, right? Volatile, but not risky, meaning they're going to go up and down in a big way, but the chance of them going to zero is slim to none. And so things like that would be mutual funds, stock funds, bond funds, index funds, ETFs, right? These carry one massive characteristic in that they're very diversified. They're owning hundreds, if not thousands of individual stocks. I mean, could you imagine if the S&P 500 index went to zero? It would mean all 500 of the largest companies in the United States would go out of business simultaneously. And at that point, I'm not worried about my investment portfolio. It's probably like a zombie apocalypse. Those are all things that are going to have massive fluctuation to them. Like in 08, 09, it lost 55%. In COVID, it lost 30, 35%. Today, it's down about 25%. But if you have the right holding period, you should be rewarded. But again, it's going to zig and zag a lot, a lot of squiggly lines on that chart going upwards. And then down at the base of the pyramid is the boring stuff, right? It's like when you look at my house, if you came over here today, nobody would be very excited to see the foundation of my house. But the foundation of the house is what keeps all the nice stuff held up. And so this is where we would look at things like insurance driven vehicles. There's permanent cash value, life insurance and annuities. There's government bonds, which again are becoming very much more attractive. There's cash, savings, CDs, money market accounts, things that again would be more preservation versus growth oriented, but provide total stability. As I kind of map this out in an exercise I would encourage all of your listeners to do is look at those three components and write down a percentage of your liquid investable assets that you're comfortable with in each. For example, maybe you have a bigger appetite for risk and you want to have a range of 10 to 20% of your assets in the top of the pyramid, maybe 50 to 60% in the middle, and then the rest in the bottom. And as you experience ebbs and flows in market value, that starts to allow you to say, hey, you know what? I put $30,000 in this cryptocurrency and over five years, it's quadrupled in money. Maybe I should take some gains and reallocate it towards the middle or the bottom of my pyramid. So it starts to create a rules-based methodology for how you build wealth. Because without that, we become behaviorally anchored into the positions that we hold. And how many times, Rebecca, have you heard people that bought an asset, it did really well, it made them a whole bunch of money, but then what happened? They didn't sell and it came crashing down, right? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. That is so fascinating. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I love that how this approach can help you become a rules-based investor so you don't make those mistakes. And I think financial planning is often overlooked. We spend a lot of time picking assets and picking what we should buy next without thinking of the overarching goals that will help us become better investors in the long run and keep more of our money. So I think, you know, the keys of what we've spoke about so far is if you establish goals to help you realize the importance of the money and why you're accumulating, and then you establish rules that you're going to abide to that help you eliminate unnecessary mistakes, just those two things alone, I think you're going to start to see a lot more success in your long-term strategy and probably reduce some anxiety that you might be facing. Because again, I've had so many people that come in and they say, hey, I made all this money in this stock and I just don't know what to do with it now. Should I sell? I don't want to pay tax, this and that. And 
You know, at the end of the day, the tax means you made a bunch of money. I and mean, think about the people that made a bunch of money last year in stocks, but they didn't sell because they didn't want to pay the tax. And now they're sitting at 40%, 50% of their values. And so set those rules-based systems. Tax is another one. Like I talk to clients about edge, uh, um, establishing what I would call a capital gains budget, a certain budget that you are going to leverage each year if you need to to harvest capital gains so that you can sell those positions and not be anchored in from a tax perspective. Just touching on that further, that is something that I struggle with is selling winners because I think I have a long-term mindset. So in my view, I'm like, I'm holding this for 10, 15 years anyways, why would I sell now? But can you, I guess, touch on that a bit more and how we should actually think about reallocating and maybe selling a portion of our winners when it would be time to do so? Your philosophy and mindset is 100% right. Like I tell people when you go to buy a stock, like unless you're just unless you're like a flipper, right? Like buying real estate to flip it. Like it's very hard to make calculated money on the short term on stocks unless there's some anomaly of a situation in market prices like COVID when, you know, we kind of saw this steep downturn and then steep upturn. But I think to answer your question is if you have a stock that you like for the long haul, then what you have to ask yourself is tie a percentage of your liquid investable assets to that stock, right? Let's say, you know, I love Amazon. I shop on Amazon. I think Amazon's a great stock. I want to continue to own it. I want to own it for the next 10 years. I think Bezos is going to do, continue to do big things. Well, if today Amazon represents 10% of my net worth, at what level would I start to get a little bit uneasy? Like, is it 15%? Is it 20%? Is it 25%? And so kind of Rebecca, going back to that concept of establishing some rules or parameters around that. And what I would do is like, if I said, okay, well, it's 10% and 10% is about all I want in one company stock. That's a pretty good exposure to one company. Now, what I would start to look at is anytime my exposure got above and beyond that, if it gets up to 12%, I might sell 2% to get myself back to 10 and I take that 2% and I invested in other areas that I think could provide some asymmetrical risk or some higher expected return to the portfolio. And that's kind of simple rebalancing in a, the broad scheme of things. But again, if you don't have a rule about what percentage of your liquid investable assets you're comfortable with in that stock, then you're just kind of leaving it up to your own emotion and how you're feeling and what the news is telling you. And I think that that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging to moderate. Yeah, that was so helpful, that explanation. And now that I'm thinking about it, that same logic can be applied between assets. So a single stock and also regional diversification. That's something I do in my portfolio. When my US equities get above 40%, and notch those down. I buy more emerging markets or I'm from Canada. So Canada. And then also, I guess that could be applied to stocks and bonds. When you see one above the allotted percentage you want, you rebalance. I think there's a couple different areas. It's individual stocks, it's asset classes, it's sectors, to your point, it's uh, geography. And the other thing, again, just people don't think about this. It's also taxes, right? There's essentially what we call three funnels of money, right? Three places we can funnel our money into. There's pre-tax, our IRAs, our 401ks, our 403bs. There's tax advantaged, our Roth accounts, our HSAs, college 529 plans, permanent cash value, life insurance, all carry tax def deferness and then tax-free later on. And then the middle funnel is post-tax. 
And what I would typically do with my clients as well is analyze if you have a million dollars of investable assets, how much is in each one of those funnels? Because at one point, we might not want the pre-tax funnel to get substantially larger than some of the other ones, because that could create a big problem in retirement, because now you might be forced to take a lot more money out of your accounts via required minimum distributions, and it could push you into a really high unnecessary tax rate in retirement. So just like in investing, rebalancing is important in the portfolio. There's ways to look at where you're actually accumulating your money into to make sure one's not getting off balance. Because if there was like the biggest piece of tax advice I had for millennial investors right now, it's that if I look at my 65 year old clients and I said, like, what's the one thing I wish I could go in a time machine and help them fix is so many of them have the biggest portion of their net worth tied up in pre-tax accounts, IRAs, 401ks and 403bs. They don't have the ability to diversify and create what I would call a tax efficient retirement income distribution plan because every dollar that they take out of those accounts is taxed as ordinary income. It's like they're a W-2 employee for the rest of their life. Whereas if they had tax diversification and they had a good amount of money in Roth IRAs as well as traditional IRAs, we could blend out the ordinary income at lower tax rates and then take money out of the Roth account at the higher brackets to get them the most tax advantageous retirement income stream we could develop, reduce taxation of social security benefit, lower their Medicare costs. And the challenging thing is, in my opinion, nobody's out educating younger generations that like, this is also stuff you need to be thinking about because it's not just accumulating a big bucket of money, it's accumulating the right types of money so that when you retire, you've got ultimate flexibility in how you design your income stream in and through retirement. That was super helpful as a reminder. We actually had a guest on recently kind of helping us talk about when we should allocate to a Roth versus Roth IRA versus traditional. And there's obviously so many different reasons why you would maybe want to choose one over the other. But I guess in terms of what you just talked about, where the biggest mistakes you see for people in retirement and where you wish they could go back, would you say that a useful tool then for millennials would be to split their contribution room to both today? So it really is independent. I'll give you a couple of guiding things that I would try to look for. Number one is like, if I'm starting off and saving and investing, maybe I'm in early stage of my career, maybe don't have incredibly high income or earnings yet. So I'm in lower tax brackets. Then what I would always recommend is participate in the 401k up to your match. That in today's tax environment is always going to get allocated to the pre-tax side of the 401k. And you're going to get some free money from your employer on top of that via the match. Then what I would do is I would really focus all of the rest of your contribution to the Roth component because you don't want to defer tax today at a low tax rate of, let's say, 12%. Build up this wealth 30 years later, have to take a bunch of income out, and now you're actually taxed at a higher rate, like 8 to 20, 22, 24, if tax rates continue to go up. Don't take the deductions today. It's like a gamble. And I always share every time you make a decision on your retirement accounts, you're gambling. If you're taking the pre-tax contributions today, that means you think your tax rates are going to be lower later on in life. And that just doesn't happen for many people, especially with the amount of spending the United States has. 
But once you start escalating in your career, now maybe you're in a higher marginal rate. Maybe you're a high income earner. You're in the 32, 35, 37% bracket. You might want to max out as much money as you can on the pre-tax side, the 20,500, for example, this year in the 401k. Use that to continue to get the deductions at those higher marginal rates today, but still do whatever you can through maybe strategies like a backdoor Roth conversion to build Roth money at the same time. So it's never an all or nothing decision. It really is individualized based on where your income and earnings are and then kind of where we project your wealth to be in the future. Now, one of the challenges like on pre-tax side, we have some clients that have been fortunate enough to accumulate a pretty substantial amount of net worth. And what people don't realize is like if, if they accumulate all this money in IRAs, pre-tax retirement accounts, and their net worth is so high, they never really need that money. Number one, at age 72, the government forces you to start taking it out and paying a high tax rate on it. But if you passed away in a retirement account is the worst savings vehicle to leave behind to your beneficiary. And the reason is you have to drain that account over a small 10-year period, if not in some circumstances even shorter, and it's all taxed at income rates. And if for some of these high, high net worth clients, they might also be impacted by the estate tax. And in some cases, you could lose like 70% of your account value to income taxes between an estate tax and an income tax. You don't want to accumulate too much money in a pre-tax retirement account. There's really an optimal balance of what you should have as you age into retirement. That was so helpful to hear your perspective on that. I think we, I know I kind of assume when I'm retired, I'll have a lower tax bracket or I won't be working. I might as well put more money into that account. But like you mentioned, tax rates just are likely to go up given how much debt we have. So it's just more of that macro factor that could really impact it versus if I'm working or not and my personal tax rates lower. Yeah, there's two components. There's the macro, right? Many economists today say that our tax rates have to double in order to pay and service the debt we have, even the interest on the debt. I mean, think about that today. If you're thinking you, you might be in a 12% bracket later on in life, and now you're in a 24% bracket, that's a big deal. The other thing that people don't realize, so again, by background, I'm an enrolled agent admitted to practice before the IRS, which is the highest credentialing the IRS award. So we do a lot of strategic tax planning. And you know, today as a younger person, when I look at my taxes, I have a lot of deductions. I have home mortgage interest. I have childcare. I have all this stuff. When you retire, most of that stuff goes away. Even if you have lower income, and even if tax rates stayed the same, you might pay more in tax because you have less deductions. And the last thing that I'll share on that point is we know tax rates are going up in 2026. In 2017, when Donald Trump passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it lowered taxes for almost everybody. Not only did the brackets lower, but they got compressed, meaning you could make a lot more money and still be in a lower bracket. That's known as a sunsetting provision. On December 31st of 2025, that tax cut sunsets and we, we revert back to the previous tax code, which was higher brackets and the compression is gone. So for less income, you now are in a higher bracket. And so for the next two years or so, we have a tax planning opportunity of a lifetime to try to figure out how we can structure our assets 
to potentially capitalize on this historically low income tax environment that we sit in today. That is so interesting. We're almost out of time here and I didn't even get through half my questions with you. I'm wondering if just one more thing for our listeners, we've kind of talked a lot about the holistic financial approach that they can take. I guess I'm just wondering, given kind of this high inflation, uh, rising interest rate environment, what is a piece of advice you'd like to give our listeners on how they can, I guess, better manage their portfolio or what they can do to kind of prepare for this if things get worse in 2023? I think the first thing is don't necessarily panic at some of the headlines. I think one of the greatest indicators of future is history, right? And and we find oftentimes that history doesn't repeat itself, but many times it does rhyme or it does look similar. We've all kind of heard that story before. And like a rising interest rate environment doesn't always mean horrific things for the stock market. If you look back into the decade of you know 1970 to 1980, We saw huge interest rates and high rates of inflation, but we did not just see like total chaos across the stock market. Actually, we saw real rates of return net after inflation and interest rates over that decade time period, albeit they weren't quite like we saw over the last decade where interest rates were really low. It just doesn't automatically mean things are going to go bad. Don't take knee-jerk reactions to your investment approach just on some of these headlines that we're seeing. There's certainly a lot of headlines right now. I mean, this jobs number is going to be a big component of it. How far the Fed is actually going to go, right? Are they truly going to tip us into a massive recession? Or are we going to potentially see a moderate recession that, you know, right now, a lot of the analysts that I follow are saying, you know, I saw a number just yesterday that at least of the big financials, uh, JP Morgan, Goldman, Uh, Some of those different firms, about 47% of their analysts are saying we are going to head into a recession, which the glass is half full. That means more than half of them say we're not going to be in a recession. But what was interesting is of the ones that said we were going to go into a recession, they said the average time was going to be seven months, right? Seven months. And typically what we see in the stock market is a stock market bottoms many, many, many months before a recession is actually declared. See, because the stock market is pricing in future information and discounting it back to today. When I talk about a great opportunity to make money, you want to look for investments that provide asymmetrical risk to the upside. You know, meaning in simple terms, we're probably closer to the bottom than we are to the next stock market high. If you have dry gunpowder, now's a great time to get in the market. Don't try to time the bottom. Timing the bottom is impossible. Now is a great time to potentially start getting in. Could we go down further from here? Yes, we could. Of course we could. Will we probably? There's going to be an incredible amount of volatility, particularly leading up to the midterm elections here in the US. But we've also seen, and if you look at data on markets, historically, there's been a pretty good rally in the stock market after midterm elections. If you look at the data from the day the polls close to the end of the year, Historically, we've delivered double the return that we've historically seen in non-midterm years. So there's some things to be optimistic about as we kind of close out this year, even though it's been an incredibly rough start. That was a great advice to leave us with today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. Before I let you go, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work and everything that you do? 
Yeah, so I have two companies. Uh, Prosperity Capital Advisors is an RIA that I am the president and founded about 11 years ago. We have offices and advisors all around the country that we teach and train and support on this holistic approach to advising. I also have more of a boutique tax and wealth management firm out of Silicon Valley, Allison Wealth. So prosperitycapitaladvisors.com if you're interested in learning more about this holistic approach and maybe an advisor in your area or allisonwealth.com, which is where we serve clients directly through our holistic approach to tax, investment management, financial planning, estate planning, and all of the family's financial needs. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was was fun. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.